As we launch back into the Psalms again this summer, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the Psalms and answer the question, what am I supposed to do with all these emotions that I feel? Uh, what do I do with my fear? What do I do with my anger? What do I do with my doubts, my despair? Um, what do I do with my guilt? And even, you know, those are all n- maybe not so happy emotions, but what do I do with my delight in God, even? So we're going to look to the Psalms to answer those questions um, from now until about the time school starts in August. And then we'll uh, look at a few psalms that will help us think together about uh, what it means for us to be a family of God following Jesus together, an intergenerational family of God following Jesus together. So that's where we're headed. That's where we're going. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help now as we come to your word. Because um, apart from your spirit, opening the eyes of our hearts, opening the ears of our hearts, we will not see Jesus as you want him to be seen unless you do it. We will not hear the good news about Jesus unless you make us hear. So we come, we're, we're willing, we're looking, we're listening, but we need your help. Would you come and show us Jesus and help us? to trust him. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So what do you do when you're afraid? Here's one answer to that question. Watch and listen carefully. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. While shivering in my shoes, I strike a careless pose and whistle a happy tune, and no one ever knows I'm afraid. The result of this deception is very strange to tell, for when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. I whistle a happy tune, and every single time, the happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. Make believe you're brave, and the trick will take you far. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. I think that's a very good idea, Mother. A very good idea. Yes, it is a good idea, isn't it? I don't think I shall ever be afraid again. Good. The result of this deception is very strange to tell. For when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. (sighs) You may know that that's from The King and I, the Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, production from 1956. 
So what do you do when you feel afraid? Anna's advice to her son Lewis is, whenever you feel afraid, whistle a happy tune as if you're not afraid, even though you really are. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. Convince others you're not afraid, and perhaps you'll convince yourself as well. Fake it till you feel it, some might say. And I'm not saying that this is wrong necessarily to do, and, or that it doesn't work. We all have our ways to try to whistle away our fears. I remember when I was a kid, and I was one of those latchkey kids. Both parents were working, so I'd come home, and I'd be by myself in the afternoon, and it kind of got scary sometimes to be at the house by myself. So I'd just turn the TV on or turn on the radio just to have some noise in the house to try to trick myself into believing that I was safe and not afraid. And we were talking about King David this morning. We even know from his story that music can soothe the savage beast because he was hired, if you will, to play a stringed instrument for King Saul when King Saul had this harmful spirit come upon him and was all stirred up, David would play for him and he would be calm. The Bible says that Saul was refreshed and was well because David played for him. So if a happy tune has that much power, if a happy tune can soothe the savage beast, then how much more could songs with lyrics that speak to God and about God how much more can they help us whenever we're afraid? Um, when we were moving here last, well, December in 2018, Anna and Christine had already moved ahead of me and were staying with Christine's mom and the twins were at Covenant. And I stayed home to finish the packing. Um, the wrong person to leave to do that, by the way. But uh, I was home finishing the packing and... I remember in those four or five days that I was there by myself trying to get the rest of the house packed before the movers came, I remember how anxious I was. I was having trouble sleeping at night. I, I found myself overwhelmed sometimes with fear and anxiety. Most of it was about how am I ever going to get all this done and, and get things ready to go before the movers show up. But as I thought back on it, deep down... Some of my anxiety that kept me up at night was, am I doing the right thing for Christine and the kids? Do I have what it takes to pastor a church? What have I gotten myself into? What have I gotten you into? Will this move expose all of the weaknesses that I think I have and know I have? Will this move prove without a shadow of a doubt, that I don't measure up as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor. And that fear, that anxiety, and I usually sleep well, but for some reason those nights I just couldn't sleep. So I found this group that Abby had told me about called the Lowly Heirs. Look them up. Um, and their music is soothing, and their lyrics were just helpful to convince me that God is God and that he's got me. And I would play that music 
and I'd go to sleep. So if a happy tune can soothe the savage soul, how much more can songs to God and about God soothe us in our fears? And this is what the Psalms do for us. The Psalms do more than what a happy tune can do. The Psalms do more than help me make believe that something is true about me even when it isn't. No, the Psalms aren't about making believe that something is true when it isn't. Singing or praying a psalm makes me believe what is true about my circumstances, about my heart, and most importantly, what is true about God and his heart toward me. God does not want you to fake it till you feel it. He wants you to faith it, whether you feel it or not. The Psalms are proof that faith in God doesn't require you to fake how you feel. Tim Keller said, The Psalms do not say we should be under-aware of our emotions or overawed by our emotions. We shouldn't be stuffing our emotions or bowing to them. We shouldn't be denying them or venting them. We should be praying them. Pour them out in the presence of God and process them there, he says. So this morning, what does it look like to process your fears, to pray your fears in the presence of God, or or to even sing them as a prayer as David does in Psalm 3? Well, here's... Here's the first thing. Whenever you are afraid, tell God. That's what David does in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But just by saying this off the top of the bat here, uh, David isn't afraid of being afraid. He's not afraid to admit that he's afraid. This has been published for all to see for generations. He admits that he's afraid. Remember, we've talked about this before. Real prayer happens when the real you talks to the real God. There must be no pretense in prayer. Come as a child to your daddy whenever you're shivering in your shoes. Don't waste time striking a careless pose. Get those shivering shoes running to your father. That's what David did. And then when David came and was willing to tell God his fears, what kind of fears did David confess to God in this psalm? First, he confessed his fear of losing his life. He says, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. We have to back up and remember what's happening. Uh, There's a little line at the beginning of this psalm that tells us the historical context for what's going on. It says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So David had many sons and many wives, and that's a whole other problem. Um, but one of his sons was Absalom. He was the most handsome of them. But his first son, Amnon, uh, raped... Absalom's sister, Tamar. Amnon raped his half-sister. Absalom was furious, but he waited for two years before he had him killed, had Amnon killed. After killing Amnon, 
then Absalom went into exile and to hide from his father. Years later, David forgave him and let him come back into the land again, but they had no relationship. And Absalom spent four years, he was a very patient man, he spent four years um, conspiring against his father. Um, he spent four years stealing the hearts of the people and then staging a coup where he gathered an army and eventually overthrew the throne and ran David out of Jerusalem into hiding. That's the context of what's going on. David is is fearing for his life, not just his physical life. He's not just afraid of losing his physical life. Look what else he stands to lose. He stands to lose his relational life. His son has betrayed him. He's lost his wives and concubines. Eh, Maybe that was a good thing for him, but still. He lost those relationships. He lost friends. He had members of his own army and court turn against him and side with his son. So he lost colleagues. And he lost the people of Israel. Um, As he was being run out of town, uh, a group of them stood on the side of the road and threw rocks at him. They cursed him. So he... He had the fear of losing his physical life. He had the fear of losing his relational life. And he had the fear of losing his vocational life, his job. No more throne, no more kingdom, no more calling. All that was over. And then he had the fear of losing his comfortable life. He went from the palace to poverty, hiding in the very caves that he hid from Saul in years earlier. So I wonder if we can relate to David's fear of losing those kind of lives. Um, Sickness, disease, threatens to take our physical life. Relational conflict in our families um, threaten to take away our relational life. Anybody betrayed you? Do you worry about your children? Have you already lost your children or a spouse? Work? You ever wonder if this is going to be the day you walk in the office and they say, "Um, you're done here. You ever wonder if you're going to lose your house and the comfortable life that you're enjoying. And on top of all that, on top of all that, a lot of this is David's fault. Do you ever feel like if you lost all these things, eh, it's probably going to be my fault. So I want to encourage you, when you talk to God about your fears, get real with him. Tell him what you're afraid you're going to lose. Tell him what you're afraid you're going to lose. What is it that your fear is telling you you're afraid you're going to lose? Say that to God. 
But David not only feared losing his life, verse 2 tells us David feared losing God's love. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And if you read the story in 2 Samuel 16, as I just said, there were people telling him that. There were people telling David that Absalom's rebellion was because of God's judgment against him. So it makes sense that David would fear that these bad things happening in his life were signs that God had rejected him, just as he had rejected King Saul years ago. It's so easy for us to believe that the suffering that's taking place in our life, the losses we're experiencing, are because God is against us. So David laments, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. David admits to God his fear of losing God. And this is important because if it's true that God has rejected you, then you have much more to fear than losing your life. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there is a fear that's deeper and greater than the fear of losing your life. It's the fear of losing God. And it's so true in my life, and I'm sure in yours, that our suffering sings lying lyrics to us. Our suffering sings to us and says, there's no hope for you. If you lose these things, you lose everything. If you lose your family, if you lose your relationships, if you lose your job, if you lose your house, if you lose your reputation, that's it. You lose everything. There's no deliverance for you. There's no salvation for you in God. In fact, God doesn't even love you or care about you anymore, or he wouldn't have put you in this situation. You can't trust him. The enemy of your soul wants you to interpret your suffering as God's rejection of you. And we said this a couple of weeks ago, that his tactic with Adam and Eve is his tactic with us today, and that is that the enemy says, God's heart cannot be trusted. His heart towards you is not good. So, when you talk to God about your fears, get to the heart of your fears. Tell him that you're afraid that what these things mean is that you've actually lost his love that you're afraid um, that you are beginning to believe the lying lyrics that your suffering seems to be singing. Tell him that you're having a hard time trusting that his heart towards you is good and that he still loves you. Whenever you're afraid, tell God you're afraid and tell him why you're afraid. Now, watch what David does next. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, Yes, I am afraid, Lord, but... And then David turns his fearful heart away from his fears and away from the lies to his Lord. The cure for fear is not pretending to be brave. The cure for fear is faith. So, whenever you're afraid, tell God what you're afraid of and why you're afraid, and then... Turn and trust him. Notice that David's declarations of trust do not begin with, 
I, but with you. He doesn't begin with himself, but with the Lord. And you may say, okay, Jimmy, this is all good, but I don't have enough faith to trust God with my fears. Exactly, that's the point. Because it's not about how much, how much faith you have. It's about how much God is. So what if you don't have a big faith? You have a big God. Faith is simply looking to that big God. Robert Murray Machane said this, and I, you've heard me quote it a hundred times, and I still will. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. So then, when I look at him, what will I see? Just how big is he? What about God is there to trust whenever I'm afraid? David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He's a shield about me. A shield that completely surrounds you, that's a very unusual shield. Shields in those days were either shields that were small enough to put on your arm and you could maneuver with them, or they may have been a shield that were as big as a door, and yes, they, they were curved and probably covered with leather that would help bounce arrows off of it, but a shield that completely surrounds you? That was odd. That was unusual. You are a shield about me. Where, where did David learn that the Lord is his shield? David knew the story of Abraham. David knew Genesis 15.1 where it says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your, your reward will be very great. And you'll remember, uh, right after God said that, he made a covenant with Abram. And you'll remember that in order to do that, God took some, or he told Abram to take some animals and cut them in half and spread the pieces. And typically, when you made a covenant in those days, both parties who would make promises and then they would walk between the pieces of the animals and they would say, in essence, may this be done to me if I do not keep my promise in this covenant agreement. But in this story, you'll remember, that God didn't have Abram walk through the pieces. God, represented by a torch and a smoking pot, walked through the pieces himself. As if to say, Abram, you and your people may not keep the end, your end of this covenant. But it, and if you don't, May this be done to me. I will pay for it. I will keep this covenant, God said. David remembers that promise of God to Abram. I am your shield. David remembers that he's covered by that covenant. He's part of that promise because he's one of Abraham's sons. David knows that no matter what he loses, he cannot lose the covenant love of God. Because that promise is not dependent on David's performance, it's dependent on God's promise. 
If David knew that in his fears, and he depended on that in his fears, how much more then should we? Because we know the end of that story. We know how it is that God was able to keep that covenant. He sent Jesus, whose blood was shed, whose body was torn, so that God could keep his promise to Abraham and to all of us who are Abraham's children through Jesus. So, in the midst of our fears, whenever we are afraid, look to God who is our shield. We are surrounded by his covenant love because of Jesus. David said, you are my glory. Um, that the, the word for glory is something that's weighty. It's got worth because it's heavy. Um, you think of gold. The glory of gold is its worth, its weightiness. And David had a lot of glory, did he not? A lot of worth, a lot of weightiness. His position, his possessions, his power, his prestige, all of the people in his life gave him a lot of weightiness and worth. But here, in this situation, when he's likely to lose all of those things from which he derived his glory and weightiness and worth, David reoriented his heart to what is most weighty in his life. He said, you, O Lord, are my glory. Remember way back when we started 1 Peter that we talked about the ballast in the boat? Something heavy that you put in the bottom of your boat to keep it afloat when the storms are coming? I think the question the Lord would ask me and you this morning is, what weighty things have we put in the bottom of our boats to try to hold us still in the storms of life? What have you made your ballast? What have you given weight in your life that you hope will keep you afloat? Perhaps my fear and my anxiety comes from my fear of losing that thing that has been given me weight that has been holding me together. Friends, the Lord is our glory. He is our ballast. Not our life, not our marriage, not our parenting, not our career, not our reputation in the community, not our house. None of those have the weight we need in our boat to stay afloat. My teenage friends, hey, good morning. It's not your performance on the field. It's not your performance on the stage. It's not your performance in the classroom. It's not how you look. It's not who you know. It's not how many likes you got on whatever post. Those things are not weighty enough to hold you steady in the storms when the suffering comes. All of those things can be taken from us. All of those things can and will be taken from us. But if he is the weightiest thing in which our heart finds its worth, then we ultimately have nothing to lose. And then we can say what Paul said in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. So whenever you're afraid, look and see what is it that I've given weight to in my life. And then look at Jesus and say, Jesus, would you help me to count every one of those things that I've given weight and worth in my life as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you? Come, Jesus, be the ballast in my boat in the middle of these storms. So David looked to God as his shield. He looked to God as his glory. And then he looked to him as the lifter of his head. For, for a king to lift someone's head was a sign of acceptance and approval. And so like a little boy, David hangs his head in shame before his king and his father as he's remembering that the brokenness and dysfunction of his family is maybe largely because of the brokenness and dysfunction and sin in his own heart. He's hanging his head in shame before his father. He knows that he doesn't deserve the saving love of God. But the Lord, David looks at him and he sees him as a compassionate father who lifts David's chin and says, look at me now. Look at me now, son. Remember when you sinned against Bathsheba and you killed Uriah? Remember when Nathan came to you and confronted you? Remember what I told Nathan to say to you. Your sins are forgiven. I will remember them no more. You're forgiven. Now, you lift your head up. I love you. You're mine. How can you and I, how can we be confident that the things we are suffering are not a sign that God is against us? Not a sign that God hates us. We can't. Unless we have entrusted our entire life, past, present, and forever life, unless we have entrusted our lives into the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, unless, like David, we have said, I have sinned against the Lord, and like David, have heard the Lord say, and we hear him say through Jesus, your sins are forgiven, I have taken them away. Then, and only then, what we read in Romans 8 this morning is true for us. Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against the elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who is condemned. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is actually praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says, shall tribulation, this sounds like, This sounds like what David was going through. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know what conquerors do? They lift up their heads. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if you're in Christ this morning, lift up your head. That's why I say that every Sunday after the confession of sin. Lift up your heart. Lift up your head. Your father is lifting your chin and saying, look at me, look at me. I love you. You're forgiven. Nothing you are afraid of, even your own sin, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But even after looking again at how big God is on his behalf, David may still wonder, so God, how can I be sure that you are my shield? How can I be sure that you're my glory? How can I be sure you're the lifter of my head? What I'm seeing around me does not convince me. How can I be sure? So in verse 4, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answered me from his holy hill, he said. The Lord graciously answers David by reminding him of his holy hill. That holy hill is a description of Jerusalem. And in Psalm 2, which is right before the one we're looking at today, Psalm 2, verse 6, when God is mocking his enemies, God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Everyone who read that knew that God was talking about the Messiah king who would one day come to defeat all of God's enemies and save his people. God had set the Messiah on his holy hill, his throne room. What else was on that holy hill? The temple was on that holy hill, where the Ark of the, where the, Ark of the Covenant resided. The Ark of the Covenant had uh, Aaron's rod in it. It had the Ten Commandments in it. It had a sample of manna in it. All that were reminders that God kept his promise to Abraham and saved his people from slavery, and brought them through the wilderness to the promised land to be his people. God says, look at that. That's on my holy hill. Remember that. And then what else happened to be on that holy hill? That's where the sacrifices for sin were provided by God. And the blood of those sacrifices had to be poured out on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing that God was covering the sin of those who broke the Ten Commandments, who broke the covenant with God, so that sinful people could be made clean and have fellowship with their holy God, God shed blood. All of that, David says, is what God answered when he cried out, how do I really know this? Friends, when you cry out to God in your fear, even in your fear that your suffering surely means he doesn't love you anymore, listen for his answer to your cry. What's his answer? He answers you by singing singing the lyrics of his love to you. He sings the good news that in your place, Jesus was betrayed and run out of Jerusalem to another holy hill where his cross became his throne, where his crown of thorns made him the king of saving love, 
where the blood of the Lamb was shed to cover your failure to keep His commandments. For everyone, look at yourself and the things that you're afraid of. Take ten looks at Christ. Bathe in the smile of your Father. Bask in the sunshine of His love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And in Christ, He has loved you. Loved you. The rest of the psalm goes quickly. What happens when we tell God our fears and then we turn and trust His saving love for us in Jesus? What happens? Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now, I'm not promising that telling God your fears and turning again to Jesus is going to make you go to sleep at night. Yeah, sometimes. Some, some things are medical. That's a, whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. But David is saying that his confidence in God's love for him in the midst of all these fears that surrounded him enabled him to rest. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. It describes the quiet, restful confidence that comes from knowing that God is for me, not against me, because he's been faithful to keep his promise to save me from the thing I should fear the most because I deserve, and that is the loss of God. Imagine what it would have been like, no, imagine what it would be like right now to be so confident that nothing, not even your own sin, can separate you from the love of God in Christ, that when the lying lyrics of your suffering are in surround sound, you can sleep soundly in the saving love of Jesus. When I thought about this this week, I thought, wait, with with all of those things going on in my life that caused me to fear because I might lose them, Are you telling me, God, that because of your love for me in Jesus, I can have rest in the midst of all that? That's unbelievable. And that's precisely my problem. Imagine what your life would be like, what my life would be like, if we had that kind of confidence. The gospel promises we can. And then we can answer the enemy's taunt of there is no salvation from God with these words. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. God, you will save me, I don't care what the lying lyrics are pounding into my heart that says that you don't love me and that you can't save me. Break their teeth. Silence the enemy, Father, so that I can hear you say again that you do love me. You have saved me. You will save me. I can trust you. Your heart is good. And then make me the kind of person who then turns, as David does, and says, salvation belongs to the Lord. God, bless your people with that good news. 
It's amazing that David turns from a man who is overwhelmed by his fears to the end of the psalm, walking away as a man who is concerned that others know the love of God in the midst of their fears. That's what the gospel does to fearful people. Father, would you come and in this table, would you take us to that holy hill? And would you remind us that you set our Savior on that throne, that you sacrificed our Savior, the Lamb of God, on that altar to cover our sin, to ensure that no matter what we lose, we would never lose you. Would you do that? Would you instill by your Spirit that kind of confidence in us this morning? We ask in Jesus' name.